Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Sojourn. We're glad that you're here this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here uh, and just looking forward to opening up God's Word with you this morning. So if you actually need a copy of the Bible, if you don't have one with you, we'd love to give you one of those. Just raise your hand and uh, somebody will bring a copy around to you so that you can read along with us this morning. And if you don't actually own one, we'd love to give that to you as a gift, uh, really believing that God's Word is uh, for our good. Uh, All of it is for our joy. And so if you don't actually have a copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to be able to take that home and read it throughout the week. You know, there's certain things in life that I think that we just tend to skip over or ignore. Uh, There's a few examples that I can think of. Footnotes, right? Who reads footnotes, right? I mean, I, I look at a page in the book, and if half the page is footnotes, I'm like, yes, I can flip to the next page. That's great. All you college students know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, if it's If it was that important to put in the book, then it should have been in the body, not the footnotes, which is why you skip over those. How about directions? How many of you have opened up a box of furniture and set the directions aside to then put the furniture together? I know of a certain few of you. I won't mention any by name, but you put the directions aside, not really paying attention. But honestly, for all of us, whoever reads the user manual for your printer, right? I mean, you don't ever actually read that thing. You plug it up and you hide that book away or throw it away altogether. And then there's user agreements. I mean, how many of you guys have installed iTunes over and over and over again and you always hit I agree, but you've never actually read the whole thing? I know maybe there's one or two of you and you're weird if you do that, but most of us don't do that. There's just things that we don't take into consideration. We skip over those things. When it comes to the book of Numbers, we might feel the same way hey, let's just skip over this one, right? I mean, I don't really ever understand what's going on here. There's a lot of numbers in the book of Numbers, and so I'd be fine moving past it. Even looking around this week as we were preparing to uh, this this part of our series, uh, I, I just didn't find even a lot of pastors who've preached out of the book of Numbers. But as we're going through this series in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, we are going to walk through the book of Numbers and see what it has to say to us. But hear me on this. Numbers is not footnotes. Numbers is not a user manual or directions for putting together a chair. It's not a boring user agreement. Numbers is God's word. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He says all Scripture is used in that way. And in God's providence, numbers is Scripture. And if it is Scripture, then we should spend some time in it. And so we're going to preach a few sermons out of the book of Numbers, believing that God can and will use this for your good, for my good, to help us be who he wants us to be. He'll use it in our church for good as we continue to see God's story of redeeming grace unfold before us. And so the text we're going to look at this morning, uh, I hope, will give us great encouragement as we look at it in light of all of Scripture. So before we open up the book of Numbers, let's just pray and ask God to do that work this morning. Father, we're grateful that we uh, have your word, that you've given it to us. Lord, that you reveal yourself in it to us for our good, that we might know who you are. And that in knowing who you are, we might better understand ourselves in light of and in relation to who you are. And so Lord, as we open up to the book of Numbers this morning, 
a book that if we're honest, sometimes we do feel like skipping over. I pray that as we open it this morning and over these next few weeks, that you would use it in our lives, that we would see Numbers as a place to give you worship, to give you praise, that it would draw us into a deeper relationship with you. And as we open up your word this morning, I pray we'd be encouraged by what we see and what we read in it, realizing that it does impact our life here and now. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit you would do that work It's only by your spirit that your word becomes effective in our lives. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that this morning for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to Numbers chapter 3 is where we're going to begin this morning. Numbers chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 5 through 13 this morning and then walk through this text with us. This is what it says, Numbers chapter 3, starting in verse 5. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine." On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now before we kind of jump into this and hopefully are able to better understand what is being said here in chapter 3, I I want us to make sure that we understand at a high level what the book of Numbers is about. Because as we begin to walk through this, I think it will be important for us to really have this uh, overarching theme and purpose of the book of Numbers in mind. The book of Numbers is a continuation of God's story with his people. It's called Numbers in Your English Bible. That's the title of this book. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of census taking in the book of Numbers. There's a lot of counting that goes on in the book of Numbers. But in the Hebrew Bible, in the original Hebrew language, this had a different title. It wasn't called Numbers. It was called In the Wilderness. In the Wilderness. And the reason for that is because the book of Numbers begins in the wilderness and it ends in the wilderness. Throughout the book of Numbers, we see God's people walking through, living their lives in the wilderness. And I think we'll see that theme is particularly relevant to us here and now as we walk through the book of Numbers. So with that in mind, what is Numbers 3 about? What what did we just read? Why does that have any bearing on our life whatsoever? In some ways, Numbers 3 is a pretty straightforward text, but it does raise a few questions for us. In verses 5 through 10, we see God lays out for Moses and for his people the duties of the Levites. And he gives these duties in relation to the priests, in relation to the tabernacle, in relation to God's people. He says these are the duties of the Levites. They're to guard the tabernacle from the people and the people from the tabernacle. Now we may ask the question, well, why do they need to do this? Why do they need to guard the people from the tabernacle? 
I mean, the tabernacle would be set up in the middle of the camp of all the people of Israel, and the Levites would camp closest to the tent on all four sides of it would be where they would be, very close to this tent to keep people out. And the reason for that is because the presence of God dwells in the most holy place of the tabernacle. And because of that, it cannot be approached haphazardly. If we go back to verses 1 through 4, we see two names that we looked at a few weeks ago. Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, two priests who didn't approach God with reverence, didn't approach God with awe, didn't approach him in holiness in the way that he had called them to, and because of that, God struck them dead. So he places these Levites as guards around the tabernacle. The holiness of God is made manifest in this place, and so it must be taken seriously. So God has appointed them to guard and protect the tent of meeting from the people so that they don't end up like Nadab and Abihu did. But in giving them that responsibility of being guards over this, of carrying the pieces of the tabernacle from place to place, God has also done something else with the Levites. He set them aside for a holy purpose that we see in verses 11 through 13. Look at those verses again. There's a key word in these verses that we have to notice that he says. He says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead, instead of every firstborn who opens the womb. That key word, God has set apart the Levites instead of the firstborn of Israel. Now what is all this about? Well, he gives us some explanation right after this. He tells us that during the Passover, when Israel was still enslaved in Egypt, that he did two things during that time. The first thing he did was he killed the firstborn of Egypt because they didn't have the blood of the lamb over their doorposts. But he also, he also consecrated the firstborn of Israel. They belonged to him. Now, I think it'd be helpful at this point to look back at the book of Exodus to see what God specifically says to his people in this instance. And this will be helpful to see how the book of Numbers ties in with the rest of what we've already studied. Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 says this, The Lord said to Moses, this is right after the Passover has taken place, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then a few verses later in Exodus chapter 13, verses 13 through 15, he says, Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? So God's saying, when when your son asks you, why do we need to be redeemed? Why are we set aside? He says, this is what you shall say to them. This is the answer you should give. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Reminders are are, are a helpful thing in life. I I like reminders in life. I have reminders on my phone and on my computer to tell me when I need to do certain things to get certain things done. I have tattoos on my arms to remind me of God's grace, to remind me that Jesus is the anchor of my soul, to remind me that I'm a disciple of Jesus. We have pictures and different things like that to remind us of friends and family and of good times and things that have happened in our life. 
A wedding ring. If you have a wedding ring on your finger this morning, it's a reminder of the covenant promise that you made to your spouse and the covenant promise that's been made to you. I think all of us like reminders. God likes reminders. And he gives reminders to his people to remind them of his grace, to remind them of who he is and what he has done for them. So in Exodus 13, God says to consecrate the firstborn. Consecrate means set apart for a holy purpose for God. So every firstborn son is to be set apart for God, to be set apart to serve God in the sanctuary, to remind his people that he spared them, to remind his people of his grace, to remind them that he brought them out of death into life from slavery to freedom. So bringing that back to the book of Numbers, to Numbers chapter 3, we see that this redemption that he spoke of in Exodus would come through the Levites. He's saying that the firstborn son needs to be redeemed, and I'm going to bring that ultimate redemption through the Levites, because they are going to become a substitute for the firstborn of Israel. Instead of the firstborn being set apart, the Levites would take on that role as representatives. And God says, they are mine I am the Lord. With that command, he gives instructions for how this redemption is going to take place. The Levites for the firstborn. And it's a four-step process. Look with me at the rest of chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. God lists out, says to Moses, list out and count all the sons of Levi. This is the first step. And in the next few verses, verses 16 through 38, we see this list of counting. Hence, again, the book is called Numbers. And in verse 39, we find that the grand total of all the sons of Levi, a month old and older, are 22,000. Step two, verse 40, we see that he is called to list out and count all the firstborn males of Israel. And in verse 43, we find that all the firstborn males a month old and upward are 22,273. Now, you may ask the question, what's with all the counting? Is it really matter? Is it really that important? Yes, it is important, as we'll see in just a moment. Step three, God gives Moses direction on how the redemption now should take place. Look at verse 45. He says, take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the people of Israel and the cattle of the Levites instead of their cattle. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. What he wants Moses to do is take the 22,000 Levites and pair them up one to one to the firstborn of the people of Israel, matching them up. One to one, but there's a problem, isn't there? We should be able to see that in there. There's 22,000 Levites, but there's 22,273 firstborn of Israel. There's 273 more people than there are enough Levites to bring this exchange, this redemption. But notice God doesn't say, well, close enough. Close enough. I mean, there's a lot of people. So we'll just overlook this 273. No, God doesn't say close enough. There must be a specific one-to-one substitution. Because God commanded that each firstborn should be set apart. Which means that in order for that son to not do that task that God has called him to, there must be a replacement. There must be a substitution. But we shouldn't be distressed over that. God's people shouldn't be distressed over that because God, as he always does, makes a way. Step four. 
For those 273, a redemption price must be paid. Look at verses 46 through 48. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel over and above the number of the male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. You shall take them according to the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 giras, and give the money to Aaron and his sons as the redemption price for those who are over. As we said a few weeks ago, redemption means there's an exchange that takes place. There's an exchange that takes place. In order for redemption to be possible, something is given in order for something to be received. In this case, for the firstborn to be, not have to be set aside to essentially have freedom from serving in this way. So this asks, this, we really have to come to the question, well, why do they actually need to be redeemed? Why can't they just serve in this role that God's called them to? Why can't these firstborn just be representatives for their family, for the people of Israel? Why do they need someone to stand in their place? We have to go back to the book of Exodus again. See, the firstborn could not bear the burden of being set apart. They couldn't bear the burden of being a representative for their family. Because in Exodus chapter 32 that we looked at, we find that the people of Israel, as they're waiting on Moses to come back down from the mountain, rebel against God. And instead of worshiping God alone, they create this golden calf, and all of them, it says, bow down to it. All of them worship this golden calf. Which means that all these firstborn are personally marred by sin and rebellion. So they can't intercede as a consecrated family representative to the Lord. They need to be redeemed. So the Levites must redeem them. Which then we have to ask the questions, well then how can the Levites redeem them? Again, in Exodus 32. In the height of this rebellion, in the height of this false worship, Moses comes down and he sees what's going on and he asks this question to the people. He says, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. He announces it. There's all this false worship going on and Moses stands up and says, who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And we find who comes to him. Chapter 32, verse 26 of Exodus, he says, and all the sons of Levi gather around him. They're the only ones. They're the only ones who come to Moses. They leave their sinful rebellion behind and in repentance turn to God in faith. They could be redeemers for the firstborn who now desperately need redemption. See, this was the first generation of Israel after the exodus. And so that means every single one of those firstborn sons who had been spared now had to be personally, specifically, and particularly redeemed. Why? Because of the seriousness of their sin. Almost enough is not good enough. 22,000 is not good enough because every single one of those people needs a substitute. See, the Levites did not just generally substitute for all the firstborn as a crowd They specifically substituted for them, one by one, either by substitution or by payment. Not too much, not too little, exactly and precisely complete. God makes a way. God makes a way through substitution and payment. Redemption has come and redemption has been accomplished. The substitution is made, the money is paid, it is finished. Now, he rescued his people at a cost. As we said, for redemption to happen, a price must be paid. First was the lamb who was slain in the place of the people. 
And second was the substitute for the life of obedience that Israel was supposed to live. And that's what the Levites did. As one pastor and commentator speaking about this chapter says this in the redemption of the firstborn, it was not so much a matter of do or die, but do and die. The job of the Passover lamb was to die. The job of the Levites was to live completely devoted to God. But here's something key that we can't miss in the midst of this. The redemption of the firstborn by the Levites was not a free pass to live life however they wanted to live. As if to say, well, hey, I can do what I want now because, look, I mean, somebody else paid for me. No, instead, what this would do for them every time they look day in and day out at the Levites standing guard at the tabernacle, it would be a constant reminder that God has rescued That God has redeemed them specifically, one-to-one, by substitution or by price, and ultimately by his grace. Every time they're, they're thinking of straying from God, every time they're questioning God's grace, questioning God's goodness, all they had to do was look towards the tabernacle, see these Levites camped around and say, I was redeemed by that guy, by that guy. It's specific to them. It's a reminder to them now that life is better under the lordship of God. He will be their God. They will be his people all because of grace. But, but the Levites can't ultimately bear the burden either. They can't ultimately bear the burden of being set apart representatives for Israel either because while they repented of their rebellion and came to Moses, while God has shown grace and mercy to them, they still have their own sin, which means they themselves need a redeemer. A greater substitute must come. A greater price must be paid. So the redeeming work of the Levites is a constant reminder of God's work in bringing freedom to his people, but it's also a constant reminder that they still need ultimate redemption from sin and from death. This is a good time to remind us of something, to remind us that at the very first sermon of this series that we preached back in, I think, April or the end of March, The first sermon that we set up this whole entire series of the Torah that we're going to walk through was this, that all of the Bible is about Jesus. All of the Bible is about Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus says all of the Bible is about him. Luke 24, verses 25 and 27, Jesus walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus says this to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then it says this, and beginning with Moses, beginning with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That means that Numbers is about Jesus. The book of Numbers is about Jesus. It means Roman, I mean, Numbers chapter 3 is about Jesus. It's about Jesus. And we say, well, how in the world is this about Jesus. Because the redemption by the Levites is only a foreshadowing of something greater. The price of redemption is too high to be paid. Only Christ can do that. And he has. See, Jesus is the ultimate priest. Jesus is the ultimate representative. Jesus is the ultimate substitute and payment who brings ultimate redemption. And we could spend forever and ever looking through the New Testament and seeing how Christ fulfills all of these things. But for our time together this morning, I just want to take a minute just to walk through a few texts to point this out to us. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 through 28 
writes this. Just listen to this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, set apart from sinners, and exalted above above the heavens. He, Jesus, has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we've looked at that several times over the last month or so, says this again by way of reminder, for our sake he made him, he made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A redemption takes place, an exchange takes place. Titus chapter 2, verse 14 Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ came to redeem us, to be a substitute for us, to be a representative for us. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. In Colossians chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the firstborn, but he doesn't need a redeemer. He is the redeemer. See, Jesus was set apart to be a redeemer for us. He was both a substitute and provided payment for our specific sin and rebellion. Jesus lived a consecrated life of obedience for us. Jesus died a sacrificial death as a substitute for us. And Jesus has come And he's done what Adam should have done in the garden. He has crushed the skull of the serpent. He has stomped on it. See, Jesus' ministry, just like the Levites, is not do or die, but do and die. He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death and rose again and is alive forevermore. In and through him is ultimate redemption and just as every firstborn of Israel needed to be redeemed, redemption was made through a substitute and through a price. But Jesus' role is different than the Levites. He didn't come to keep unqualified people out of the presence of God. No, Jesus came to make a way to allow sinners like you and me in. He came to transform unholy people into people who are now able to stand in the presence of holy God now. We're able, because of what Christ has done, to stand in the presence of holy God because we are clothed in his righteousness. No one can do anything to become qualified apart from the redemption that Christ has purchased for us. Not by good works, not by good deeds, not by trying to be a good person. Only through Jesus, who stands as a substitute for us. But sojourn, it gets even better than that. Jesus did not simply and generally redeem. 
He specifically and particularly redeemed, just as the Levites did for the firstborn of Israel. As one pastor puts it, Jesus did not simply write a blank check that was sufficient for humanity. On the cross, he wrote a check that specifically provided the payment for each and every one of his elect people, not just making their salvation potentially possible, but actually purchasing them. See, on the cross, sin is either paid for completely and fully, or it isn't. And if it isn't completely paid for, then there's still more work to be done. There's still more redemption that must come, more things to accomplish. But we know from God's word that's not the case. First Peter chapter 2, we see that Jesus on the cross paid for sin. Romans chapter 3, 1 John chapter 2, on the cross, redemption was accomplished because God's wrath was satisfied. On the cross, Jesus died for his church, Ephesians 5.25 tells us. On the cross, Jesus himself declared, it is finished. There's nothing else to be done. Redemption is complete. See, Christ did not come to make men redeemable. He came to redeem. There's nothing else to be be done, nothing else to do. Sin has been paid for. Redemption is accomplished. Now it must be applied to those for whom Christ died. Now we think, well, why does this really matter? Why does this really matter? This matters because it gives meaning and purpose to what Christ did. It matters because God's love is more evident if we understand it in this way. Let me give you an example to maybe help illustrate this. If I come home next week with flowers and my wife says to me, oh, that's so sweet, you bought these for me? But I say, well, not exactly. I didn't buy them specifically for you, but just bought them generally for whoever would want, would want them. So if you want them, you can have them. I don't think that's going to mean a whole lot to her at that point. My love for her is not clear in doing that. But let's say I come home next week with flowers and my wife says to me, oh, that's so sweet. You bought these for me. And I say, yes, I've been thinking about you all day and I love you. So I bought these flowers for you. And it changes the meaning of it. Look, Jesus says to you this morning, I died for you. I died for you. I died for you. I lived a perfect life for you. I lived a perfect life for you. I lived a perfect life for you. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father chose us to be in Christ. He chose us to be blameless and holy, to be set apart. And his unchanging plan has always been to adopt us into his family by bringing us to himself through Jesus because there's no way that you or I could come on our own. He purposed to redeem us through the shed blood and perfect righteous life of his son that we could be forgiven, that we could receive grace and mercy. As a pastor, a friend of mine has said and written about, he said, this is planned grace. This is planned grace. Just as the Levites specifically, particularly, and exactly redeemed the firstborn of Israel on a one-to-one basis, down to all 22,273, Jesus specifically, particularly, and exactly redeemed his people. 
by being a substitute and paying the price for sin. See, on the cross, Jesus did not make redemption possible. He accomplished it. It is finished. What this means is is that you and I are not redeemed because we believe. We believe because we are redeemed. Our redemption from beginning to end is in Christ and him alone. We do not accomplish our own redemption. And that is good news for us. That is the best news for us, that we do not accomplish our own redemption. Jesus did, and he did it on the cross. Sojourn, this should be so encouraging to us. It should be so encouraging to us because it is the basis of our assurance and is the motivation for abandoning abandoning ourselves to the mission of God. It should be encouraging us because it's the basis of our assurance. It's the motivation of abandoning ourselves to the mission of God. See, the assurance of salvation is one of the most glorious doctrines of the gospel, one of the most glorious implications of the gospel, but it's also one of the most misunderstood. There's some who reject it completely, saying, no, you can lose your salvation. You can lose your redemption. So they reject it completely. And there's others that would say something along the lines of, look, if you pray that prayer there, then you can know for sure today that you are saved. But listen to me, as one pastor so clearly puts this. He says this, there can be no assurance if the ultimate cause of your redemption is found in yourself. There can be no assurance if the ultimate cause of your redemption is found in yourself. You and I can have assurance this morning because our redemption in Christ was accomplished by Christ, not by us. The basis of our hope The basis of your hope this morning, that you're saved, that you're redeemed, cannot be that you prayed a prayer. It cannot be that you walked down an aisle. It can't be that you went through confirmation. It can't be that you threw your stick in the fire at camp. The basis for your hope that you are saved, that you are redeemed this morning, must always reside in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus didn't die for a principle He didn't die for a possibility. He didn't die for a cause. He died for us, his people, his church, his bride. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 says that Jesus went to the cross despising its shame with the joy set before him. Why do you think Jesus had joy in going to the cross? Because he knew who he was dying for. He knew what he was going to accomplish. If your only hope is in Christ this morning... If you are resting in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection alone for your redemption, you can know this morning that God's planned grace included you. As we read this morning, the Apostle John says, I write these things to you who believe so that you may know that you have eternal life. Let me just stop here and say this to all of us this morning, that we need to come to God through Christ today. It's the only way. Whether for the first time or the hundredth time, Jesus' sheep hear his voice and they respond in faith. See, redemption has been accomplished, but now it must be applied to each person's life through repentance and through faith. And so for those of you this morning that have not yet accepted the redemption that Christ purchased on the cross, let me say to you this morning, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus by repenting of your sin by trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ alone. He declared it is finished and now calls you to himself. There's nothing that you have to do. There's nothing that you can do because Jesus said it is done. 
nothing magical to say, nothing magical to do. You come to Christ today in faith, responding to grace today, asking God to save you through what Christ has done today. Saying, I I, I want this today. I want Jesus today. I want to be made new today. So if that's you, if you find yourself in that place, let me call you to do that today. And please come talk to me after the service. Any of our other leaders, we'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to see the redemption that Christ accomplished on the cross be applied to your life today. Sojourn, the book of of Numbers is the story of God's people in the wilderness. It begins in the wilderness and it ends in the wilderness. And you and I find ourselves in the wilderness right now. We know Christ has come and we know that he'll come again. But right now we are not yet home. We are sojourners. We are exiles just passing through. And sometimes in the midst of that, if we're honest, we might wonder if God is going to bring his good work in us to completion. We might wonder if final redemption is ever going to come. We might wonder, are we going to make it to the end? But listen, if we struggle to be assured of his grace, we can't look in ourselves. We can't look to other people. We look to Jesus. Just as God's people could look to the Levites and say, I was losing hope. But they remind me that God is a redeeming God and he has made a way for me. See, we also now look to Christ And can, with hope, say, he died for me specifically. That's where my hope is. That's where my peace is. That's where my rest is. We need to remember the words of Jesus. When he says to us that while we're in the wilderness of this age, that he has not abandoned us, he will not abandon us, but he will be with us till the very end of the age, and that he's coming again, and he will bring us all the way home. As the pastor of the church that we were a part of when I was in seminary, he, talking about this, says this. Just a good summary of how God is doing this work. He says, God the Father specifically and particularly loved you before there was time. Jesus purchased your pardon 2,000 years ago. And now his spirit has given you the gift of himself and secured you in God's kingdom forever. Then he says this, this beautiful work of grace frees you to worship with intoxicating joy regardless of your circumstances. This should bring us to a place of worship and rest because we know that our assurance in Jesus is in Jesus because he is our redeemer. So undeserving and so specific and so unreal that we should respond in worship because of that. Another pastor says, he says, if you truly believe, and the Bible gives you tests to determine whether you do, you can rest your heart in God's sovereign grace and begin to look forward to an eternity of glory in the kingdom that you are now called to serve. Why? Because Jesus died for you. Which leads to our next point. The specific and particular redemption of Christ gives assurance And is the motivation to abandon ourselves to the mission of God. You are no longer your own. You were bought with a price. The life you now live, you live by faith. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And Christ is in the business of bringing redemption to the world. See, like the Levites, we now have a ministry. Not to tell people to keep out, but to tell them to come in through Christ because he is the only way. 
As the redeemed, we now bring a message of redemption, saying God is holy. Sin deserves death, but God has made a way. What the world offers brings death, but in and through Jesus' life now and forever. The fact that Christ was set apart for us, that Christ died for us, that Christ accomplished redemption from beginning to end for us should be fuel for mission. It should be fuel for mission because it means that giving redemption to people is not something that we ultimately give. It's not something then we can ultimately screw up either. That we can go as messengers of redemption, pointing people to the redeeming God who does that work. See, Israel is God's people. But we find in Christ, what we find in him is that God's people are not ethnically specific, but globally extravagant. God's people are not ethnically specific, but globally extravagant. John 3.16 says, God loved the world that he sent his son to save it. Why does this matter? Because as particular as he was in redeeming the firstborn of Israel, God is particular in redeeming people from every tribe, every language, every nation. And his particular redemption of his people drives us to engage in gospel mission. As Pastor David Platt has said, this fuels not only mission, it fuels death-defying mission. Why? Because we know that Jesus died for people all over the world so we can go anywhere with hope. We can go anywhere with hope because we know that Jesus died for people from every tribe, every language, every nation. Listen, Sojourn, God is saving people in Fairfax. He's saving people in Virginia. He's saving people in and around the U.S. He's saving people in Saudi Arabia. He's saving people in Iraq. He's saving people in Syria. He's saving people in Indonesia. He's saving people in North Africa. He's saving people in Haiti. He's saving people in China. He's saving people in Japan. He's saving people in India. Why is he saving these people? Because Jesus specifically died for specific people in specific places. Revelation 5 shows us a picture of this reality. That Jesus has secured salvation. He said it is finished for people from every tribe, every language, and every nation. And Jesus has not yet returned. Which means that our work is not yet done. Because Christ will not return until everyone he died for has heard and believed the gospel. Sojourn, we are particularly redeemed for purposeful mission. And like Israel, we can look at the Levites, as they looked at the Levites, we now can look to Christ, be reminded of our redemption, and be motivated to go to the ends of the earth with that message of hope and grace because, as David Platt also says, the atonement of Christ is graciously, globally, and gloriously particular. Sojourn, we have to go. We have to go to our nation, to our neighbors, and to the nations. We have to go to them See, God is providential over your life. Perhaps he providentially planned for you to live right next to the person you live next to so that they in God's providence would hear the gospel from you because God, before the foundation of the world, said he would save him or her because Jesus died for him or her. The good news of the gospel is that God's redemption will not fail. There's not a single person who God predestined to be a son or daughter that will be lost. That should free us to go everywhere, all over the world with this message of redemption, knowing that God is saving people in all of these places.
so we together can abandon ourselves to that. He's called us as his redeemed people to share this message with all people, trusting him with the outcome. We proclaim he gives life. In your place, Jesus lived. In your place, Jesus died. And sojourn, because of that and that alone, we can have blessed assurance and be on purposeful mission. We're going to end our time in the Word this morning with a grace-infused meal. See, when we take the bread, signifying Christ's body given for us, when we drink the cup, signifying Christ's blood shed for us, we are eating and drinking a gracious meal of assurance. It should remind you It should encourage you today that your redemption is not something you can accomplish, which means your redemption is not something that you can lose. It's Christ's work from beginning to end. Every week when you come forward to take the bread and take the cup, we say something specific to you. We say Jesus' body was broken for you. Jesus' blood was shed for you. Man, does that hit you when you hear those words? It should blow you away. He didn't die generally. If you're just willing to accept it, he knew what he was doing when he went to the cross to die for you. May that give you rest today. May that give you joy and peace today, knowing that if you have partaken of his redeeming grace by faith alone, then you are his and he is yours now and forever. And then by eating of this meal, may that propel you to go make much of your king all over the world. And for those of you that don't, yet know Christ, we would ask you not to come forward to take communion because this is a meal of assurance. It's a meal of grace. It's a declaration that we're desperate for Jesus, that we know it's only in and through Christ that we can have this redemption. And so if you have not yet applied Christ's redemption to your life through repentance and faith, we would ask you not to come forward to take communion, but to sit in your seat this morning and ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask God to save you today to turn away from sin and to trust in what Christ has done. We want you to take Jesus today so that you can come forward next week to take communion and be assured of his grace in your life. Those of you that will come forward, come forward when you're ready. You can tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink and hear those words of what Jesus has done for you. Come when you're ready. Eat and drink, and then let's together sing in joyous worship for the grace we've received in and through Christ alone, who says to you this morning, it is finished. Let's pray. Father, I am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for your spirit who illuminates your word for us who makes it clear to us. And Lord, I pray that your word this morning has been and will continue to be effective in the life of your people, my heart included, Lord. I pray that I'd be encouraged this week, that your children in this room would be encouraged this week, knowing that redemption is not something that we can screw up because Christ accomplished it fully and completely on the cross for us. May we rest in that today. May we find our assurance in your grace today because of what he has done for us. And then, Lord, I pray that we would be a church that because we believe the truth of the gospel, that we would go to the ends of the earth with the message of the gospel. That we would not fear man, 
would not fear those who can destroy our bodies, but would only fear you, God, and want to worship you and make much of you that your name might be exalted in every corner of this earth, knowing that Jesus secured the salvation, secured the redemption from people from every tribe, every language, every nation. Father, would you raise up men and women in this church, not only to go to our neighbors, but to go to the nations. Father, I pray that you do that work and that you'd get all the glory for that. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you're faithful. We thank you that even when we are running away from you, that you never leave us, you never forsake us. We praise your name this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen.